In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So at this point in 2 Corinthians, Paul has moved on from directly addressing his conflict with the Corinthian church and towards other matters. To quickly summarize what we read, Paul brings up the Macedonian churches who were going through their own trials, but gave generously to Paul, who was distributing that money to other churches, specifically the church in Jerusalem. It seems like the church in Corinth has given some as well, but Paul invites them to bring it to completion. He writes, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. He's clear that he isn't commanding them, but he does encourage them to do this work. He wants them to have a willingness to be generous. He closes the section by saying that his desire wasn't for other churches to be relieved and them to be hard-pressed. It wasn't to overgive and put themselves in trouble, but that there might be equality. And even though he isn't directly addressing it, this isn't unrelated to the reconciliation that Paul commended to the Corinthians. The fact that the Corinthian church was being reconciled to Paul and through him other churches meant that the Corinthians should care for those other churches as well. The spiritual realities of the gospel and the physical and material realities of supplying for each other's needs can't be separated. It's easy to unnecessarily split the Christian life into spiritual and material, maybe evangelism and mercy ministries. But the same gospel that breaks down walls of hostility between us and God and between disparate groups is the gospel that speaks to how we live and care for each other, even how we deal with that most sacred of all resources, our money. This is a consistent message for the early Christians. In 1 John, we read that, or we read that, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Jesus elaborates on the second part of his summary of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, by telling the story of the Good Samaritan who provided food and shelter and healed an enemy in need. James says that pure religion undefiled is caring for orphans and widows. And even centuries later, Basil the Great would write this, when someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to the one who could clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. Basil's got a whole sermon there in and of itself, but we'll continue on. Whatever we believe about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it must include caring and loving people in this world, not only proclaiming a message about the world to come. To be clear, the opposite is true as well. To feed and clothe people and not invite them to follow Jesus is to leave out the ministry of reconciliation that Paul proclaimed last week. It is to fail to proclaim the power of the good news that frees us from sin and death and gives us new freedom to be fully human. These two things must be consistently brought together. But perhaps the reason why generosity is so frequently brought up throughout the Bible is because being generous is actually incredibly difficult. It's addressed in our reading this morning from Deuteronomy, where we get a kind of case study of one of the many ways the Israelites might have been tempted to neglect those in need around them. Of course, there are many other ways in which the law might be applied, but Moses is giving one example as a sort of test case. He's speaking about giving to the poor, and he warns, warns them about this thought. Don't have this mean thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. This is a temptation because every seven years, debts were to be canceled out, totally forgiven. So you find yourself in year six, 
you might be tempted not to give very generously because that loan may very well be erased from the ledgers. That would be good financial advice. Don't lend in the sixth year. You're never getting it back. But Moses says that in that case, you would be guilty of sin by not lending. The Israelites are commanded not to be tight-fisted, but instead to be open-handed and to cultivate generosity. He notes that the poor will always be with you, which sometimes we invoke as a way to shrug our shoulders at the problems of poverty. Well, there will always be the poor with us. But the command here is actually the opposite. Since there will always be people to give to, give to them. There is no qualification about merit or deserving. Give according to their need. Like grace that is offered to us, gifts here are simply given because the person needs one. Now, since we're talking about poverty, you might be tempted in this very moment to pick up your favorite partisan political talking point and try and bludgeon someone else with it, at least in your mind. You're probably not going to talk in the middle of the sermon, but I'm guessing where your mind might travel. Resist that temptation. I have had to. You all know I would love to go down that path. And by all means, let what God's word says about generosity and the poor be the foundation and reason for your political opinions and actions, the way you advocate for the power of the state to be used or not to be used, as the case may be. But too often we jump to those practicalities without first cultivating the necessary character needed to make them happen. We ask our politics and our behavior to write checks that our virtue can't catch. That's an essential part of what the texts are commending to us this morning. The passage in Deuteronomy doesn't give specifics about how to lend. There aren't terms of the loan. But the point is that we ought not to close our hearts to the poor. It's an appeal to conscience and to develop a conscience. Paul similarly doesn't address the issue directly in his letter to the Corinthians. His approach is kind of like when he tells Philemon that he could instruct him to free his runaway slave Onesimus, but he won't. He'll just remind him, you owe me your whole life, and it's probably the right thing to do, but I'm not going to tell you what you should do in this instance. It's a classic parent move. But Paul isn't just trying to guilt in this moment, trying to shame you into doing the right thing. Because while Paul is concerned for the needs of the Jerusalem church, and he's aware that the Corinthians have the ability to meet those needs, his concern is also for the Corinthians themselves. As followers of Jesus, our desire ought to be that our entire lives conform to the likeness of Jesus. Meaning that when we commit the sin of greed, when we are tight-fisted, it isn't just bad for the people who don't receive our gifts. It's bad for us, too. Conversely, cultivating generosity doesn't just provide for others' needs. It is part of our own growth in virtue. It is part of God's renewal and restoration of the whole world. Paul holds up the Macedonians as an example. He speaks about how they gave themselves to the Lord in verse 5, and it's because they exceeded expectations in giving. He opens the chapter by saying that he wanted the Corinthians to know about the grace that God had given the Macedonian churches. And he explains that that grace that they received was overflowing joy and generosity in the midst of a very severe trial. Paul apparently considers this to be fundamental enough to the Christian life that he compares giving to other Christians in need with the incarnation itself, Christ's emptying of himself, becoming human in order to redeem and restore humanity is for Paul like the Corinthians giving money. He writes this, For you know that the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He's not talking about wealth. He's not talking about Christ giving up money so that others might have money. This is what incarnational life looks like. Grace manifests in real actions. Following Christ isn't simply a matter of right theology. 
And growing isn't just a series of epiphanies we have as we read new books and discover new frameworks to understand life and faith. To be clear, I have had many important, significant moments in my own spiritual journey that came from reading books and having epiphanies. But those need to lead to something. They need to actually form us into new people. Walking with Jesus means that we offer up increasingly more and more of our lives so that he can show us how we might use those and live more truly abundant lives. Paul's word to the Corinthians and to us is that we must live whole lives that proclaim the gospel. Some of the most righteous people I've ever met, and maybe some of the most righteous people you've ever met, knew the least theology, but they knew that Jesus loved them, they loved others, and they committed whatever they had to making that known in word and in deed. This morning, Paul speaks about being generous with our money, but there are plenty of other ways in which we can wall off other portions of our lives. There is no part of our lives where the gospel won't have something to say. And it might make us do things that are nonsensical. It might make us lend to someone, expecting that the debt will be canceled. It might mean giving of your own hard-earned money in times of hardship so that others might have what they need. Not based on their merit, but simply based on the need. Following Christ means that we run our businesses and take care of our gardens and create artwork and sit in class and learn in ways that are typified by love of God and love of neighbor. It will spur us on to make bad financial decisions and wear out our bodies and put ourselves in harm's way as we step out in faith because we believe that Jesus gave of himself so that we might share in his riches. And we know that to do the same is true life, true freedom. Now I pray that we hear this not as judgment but as actual good news. It was so encouraging me for me to hear that when Paul talks to the Corinthians, he doesn't just say do this, he says you, you had even a desire to do it. God even honors an eagerness, even where the work hasn't come yet. The eagerness itself is righteousness, the willingness. Sometimes our faith is, Lord, I wish that I had faith. I want to believe. It's the, it's the centurion who says, Lord, help me in my unbelief. I'm a believer. This is the contrast. This is the life that we're often in as Christians, taking even that seed of potential and offering it up to God and building upon it. The expectation is, yes, you'll go somewhere, but there is no starting place that is unacceptable to God. There is simply potential. Each part of our lives is a space in which Christ can do his work to redeem and renew the whole world. So I pray that the good news of Jesus, that he became poor, that we might have the riches of his grace, may it change our whole lives and make us eager to participate in being generous to others and giving of ourselves so that others might benefit. May we find that to be good news indeed, that in following Christ's example, we find ourselves caught up in God's love, living fully human lives, loving God and loving our neighbor. Amen.